Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 63rd episode of the RIT Podcast. Quebec's election was a big win for the Coalition Avenir Quebec, but it was also a win for the polls. Polling in Canada has been pretty accurate in a string of important elections, and one of the polling firms that has proved the most accurate over that time is Leger. The polling company has been very close to the mark not only in Quebec earlier this week, but in Ontario back in June, and in the last two federal elections as well. So to talk about how the polls performed on Monday, and also how Leger goes about gathering its data, I'm joined today by Christian Bork, Executive Vice President at Leger. Hello, Christian. Hi there. So it was a, a good night uh, for François Legault, clearly, but it was also a pretty good night for the, for the pollsters. Now, there wasn't a lot of surprises on Monday night, and maybe that is a bit of a testament to, you know, that the polls were pretty close. Even at the riding level, I, uh, there weren't that many huge upsets or, or things that struck me as surprising. But if there was any big surprises for you, what was it on Monday night? Well, there's not necessarily surprises, but there were sort of big unknowns heading into the last weekend. One was uh, with the Conservative Party of Quebec. It's a brand new party, had zero organization just three months ago on the ground. Um, and we were seeing them poll in the mid-teens throughout the campaign and heading into the campaign itself. But our big question was, are they going to go and vote? Uh, looking at who their that clientele is traditionally uh, and seeing what happened with the vote for, the, uh, for Bernier last time in the federal election where a lot of that potential did not turn out uh, on election night, we were worried the same thing might happen to the Conservatives, uh, but did not actually. They they voted pretty much in the same way that pollsters had predicted. Yeah, and uh, they came pretty close in the two writings in the Bose, uh, which uh, maybe Max and Bernie is going to look at that as a positive thing for next time. But yeah, it, it was uh, it it did kind of play a play out a lot as expected. Um, so the final poll that Leger had was 38% for the CQ, 17 for the Liberals, 15 for QS and the Parti Québécois, 14 for the Conservatives. And the result was 41 for the CQ, 15 for the uh, QS uh, and the PQ, 14 for the Liberals, 13 for the Conservatives. So it was very close. But I, I'm curious to have your take on what might have been behind the the little bit of the overestimation of the liberal vote and the underestimation of the CAQ vote? Because that that thing kind of happened again in, in 2018 as well. Yeah, I think traditionally when we look at, po at polling in Quebec, the issue has always been before that, um, that polls tended to underestimate the liberal vote. There was something called the ballot box bonus, made famous by uh, Premier Barassa, of course, saying that at, in that sort of last weekend, there's a couple of points of people who were discreet uh, in polling that actually turn out to vote for the stability option or the federalist option in this particular case. Um, and now, because of the sort of the axis in Quebec politics is changing more to a left-right alignment than to a yes-no alignment, slowly we're finding that that ballot box bonus is not present. And now we actually face the opposite, uh, is we tend to somewhat overestimate the liberal vote altogether. When we look uh, at past at 2018, where all the pollsters, I mean, and the difference was beyond the margin of error in mm -hmm. 2018 for the liberal vote, um, is we look at participation by riding or at the riding level. Um, and our concern at this election was, again, we would be faced with the same phenomenon, which is a lot of English language voters and allophone voters, those who don't have uh, uh, as their mother tongue, either English or French, uh, basically if they're disappointed with the Liberals or don't actually believe in the Liberals' chances, they tend to stay home more than anything else. And again, we saw the same thing. I was looking at the writings on election night, Darcy McGee, uh, which of course, 
has always been liberal and likely will be. Uh, but we were seeing that they were winning the seats with nine to 10,000 votes, where that, that used to be 25, 30,000 votes for the liberals, is that a lot of those liberals, some of them went to the conservatives, some of them went to uh, Quebec Solidaire, but really most of them just basically did not turn out. So participation at the writing level explains part of, of, uh, of the difference, both on the CAQ side, because it's mostly sort of francophone vote rich uh, uh, CAQ versus Anglo slash allophone vote rich liberals uh, who did not turn out. Uh, so, so that's part of the difference that we uh, that we actually saw on Monday, and the total collapse of the liberal vote among francophones. Um, when we were polling them at six or seven or eight percent among francophone voters, um, would that actually turn out as well? So, turnout is a big issue when it comes to the liberal vote. Where on the CAQ we were a tad worried at thirty-eight percent when we. I mean, this is what the survey said not to to quote uh, bob barker or or whatever it is family feud or um but uh when we actually looked in our last survey at those who said they had voted in advance polling and we looked at voting intention by uh only with the advanced polls we did see that the caq was almost half uh of those who had voted in advance had voted for the caq so we said Okay, what does that mean for election night? Does it mean that they will get all their vote to turn out, that they're actually doing better than we might have success, uh, suspected? And that's a little bit what happened as well on Monday night. Yeah, I, I don't know, because we don't really know when Elections Quebec is reporting some of the numbers, where they're coming from. But in a number of writings, uh, if you followed the, um, the sort of the poll by poll coming in of the vote, a lot of the writings where the CQ was up against the Liberals, they were often way ahead at the beginning of the count, and then it started to get a little tighter. There was a point in the evening where I think they were at 92, 93 seats, and then they ended up losing a couple of them to the Liberals. And I think it was in part because that advance vote might have been counted first, and it just showed how much of an advantage they had there. And like you said, you know, when I was looking at some of the turnout in like Nelligan or Jacques Cartier, writings like that, it was often about 58% or so, but turnout in Quebec as a whole was somewhere around 66, 67. So it does suggest that in some of those liberal ridings, turnout would have been a bit lower. Um, so I guess a question then would be, when you're looking at your final poll, um, do you think about that and whether any adjustments need to be made? Well, in the last uh, few elections, we do make a, a, a little bit of an, uh, of an adjustment. Uh, we weight by traditional variables, and then we do ours over uh, over the web, of course, using our, our panel. Um, so we will weight by age, region, language, um, education now, uh, presence of children in the household that we've added as a weighting variable because web panels tend to be um, or tend to over-index on single-person uh, dwellings. So we also correct for uh, presence of children in the household. Um, and what we've added is uh, basically using three fairly simple questions uh, that we actually now have an extra weighting variable, which is uh, a probability of voting uh, that we've added in. So we don't exclude people um, uh, per se, but we basically weight them down if we suspect they probably will not be voting. Uh, so we wanted to take into account the impact of turnout on uh, the final numbers. Now, when we look at, at sort of at our traditional weighting, 
And the final weighting using probability of vote, it basically makes a 1% difference plus or minus mm. for each of the different parties. Uh, so it's not extreme. It doesn't really modify the, the landscape all that much, but we believe it, it has that extra sort of ounce of accuracy at the very end. And it's, it's fairly simple. Uh, uh, what's, what's the date of the election? If you mm. can't think of the date, you're likely not be, will not be voting. Uh, then we have sort of declared probability of, of voting uh, that we use as well. And the third one is to what extent you would feel guilty if for some reason you were not able to vote. Uh, so adding those three variables together gives us a, a weight on probability of vote that, it, again, it doesn't really um, have a huge impact um, on the final numbers, but um, you know, a point here and there uh, sometimes makes the difference between being within the margin of error for most, if not all parties, or a little bit outside. But that's the only difference, really, from, hmm. the, from the raw weighted data using social demographics. Okay, so let's uh, let's take it back. Uh, not just looking at this election, you know, there's a couple elections now. The Leje has been quite close. Um, so let's go down to the beginning, right? What's what do you think is behind the success that uh, your polling firm has had in the last few elections, particularly these big elections where you know the stakes are usually pretty high? Yeah. Um... I, th I think it's been a good period for pollsters in Canada altogether. Uh, so, I, I mean, and as a member of the industry, if the industry does well, then everybody does well mm -hmm. and we're all good. Uh, the worst would be sort of... Uh, these guys got it right, but all the other ones did not. Uh, I mean, that would not really uh, be beneficial for the industry. So on Monday night again, the industry won. I, I, jokingly, we were saying Canada did much better than Brazil on Monday night. Um, so, so from that perspective, anyways, it's been a good period for Canadian pollsters altogether, and it it is also a weird period because it's the, it's the uh, it's uh, I mean three fundamentally different methodologies are going at the same. Uh, within with the same objective of being close so doing telephone ivr um and uh and and web and really we're seeing sort of slowly sort of a convergence of the different methods as everybody has access to the web and as you know all methods get refined over time um i think for for us we it's basically size of the panel so for example in quebec where we have about 200,000 members of our panel, um, the chances of you know, finding a, a random sample within that large panel that actually makes sense, that actually looks like the Canadian or the Quebec population is much easier than in the panel was very, very small. Then you have to trust that it's not only about randomness anymore if you draw a random sample from a very small universe of, of potential respondents. So, uh, so size of the panel is one of the explanation. We also now toss in quality control variables uh, that we make sure that we exclude people uh, or potential robots, potential fraudsters, potential, potential uh, straight liners. So, I mean, the, the, the actual quality controls of, of web-based research have, have improved over time um, as well, which I, I guess gives us more confidence. Um, plus, given that it's, it's our panel uh in the middle of the campaign we decided to have a much larger sample uh of over 3000 people uh because we're not paying somebody else to do it so we can afford to do it internally it's our own it's our own money uh, uh, uh sort of being used to good service so from that larger survey in the mid campaign we basically felt uh, the next time we draw a random uh, sample of a thousand from our panel and we sort of look back at the week before where we had 3,000 
we can sort of see if the regions are well balanced. Uh, if, uh, you know, if the, the, the Eastern Quebec, you know, all of a sudden shot a, a plus 20 for the liberals, we would have said, whoops, something's wrong. Um, so the fact that we can draw bigger samples at different periods of time during the campaign also uh, gives us more confidence. Um, other than that, it's basically using the same questions over time, using the same uh, team of researchers uh, that have worked on these now for 20 odd years. At some point, you, you, you know when uh, you can trust your data. The other thing as well that, that we're finding over the last few elections is that um, there are not sort of wide variances in, in how people will vote over short periods of time. And uh, like I don't remember, 2015 was probably the, 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 the example where we saw the most impressive shift of voter support over a short period from the leading NDP to the winning liberals uh, at the end. And mind you, in 2015, the industry got it right. We some mm. collectively underestimated a little bit the push uh, for the liberals at the very end. And you remember doing seat projections back then in 2015. Uh, heading into the last weekend, we all got that feeling that, you know, the liberals had, had taken off. But, uh, I mean, polls predict the past. Uh, it was hard to actually see where they would end up. But even then, the pollsters got it right. So sometimes if, if your poll on week one uh, gives you a, a part of the story on week two, why would that story I'd really change that much? So um, there are no plus tens or minus tens over a seven day period unless something happened in it. I mean, it did not even happen when blackface, for example, if we recall mm. again, a federal election, but everybody thought, oh, that's it. I mean, we'll see a massive change in support uh, in Canada. I basically, voting intentions barely blinked over that period. So um, as well, it, consistency over periods uh, is something that when you look at your data, you say, why would there be a plus three there or a minus three? you need to be able to explain those variances but we don't we don't see the peaks and valleys um sometimes when you look at uh, other companies polling during a campaign and you're you're thinking why is this minus eight there what what happened over a week where where people would would uh would would flip uh so easily between uh between their allegiances i, I mostly what we're finding is polling tends to be fairly stable over short periods over time. And uh, and again, adds to the confidence that you can have in your numbers. If you can easily explain away those usually smaller, even often within the margin of error, margin of error variances over, over in seven or 10 day periods. Does it ever happen then when you get a, a new set of data and you're expecting something and nothing changes. Like, does that ever happen? Like there was a big debate. Everybody thought this person won or lost. And then your, your data comes in and, oh, it's it's plus one or or exactly the same as last week. Does that ever yeah, make well, you wonder? Yeah. Well, it, it, the problem is both federally and, and provincially here in, in Quebec is that over time, there's more options or more viable options uh, where people can actually park their votes uh, 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 in surveys that discrepancies are, are not that huge. After the first French language debate where everybody said, oh, Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon did a fabulous job, we might see a bounce back in PQ support. And some of that, of course, will, will eat away at support for the CAQ. And then we were all excited and plus two, minus two. 
<laughs> that was basically it. But then, I, then you go back and say, well, why would QS supporters all of a sudden want to vote for the Parti Québécois while those parties are so different on a host of core issues? Um, so had no impact on QS. Why would liberal voters decide to vote PQ because PSPP did a good job on a debate? I mean, so the, so the net impact we should anticipate should be fairly small. Hmm. Uh, and indeed it, it was, but uh, again, because we like following elections, we all of a sudden thought, oh, wow, can't wait till our next survey. And then it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a downer when there's only a point or two in each direction. Let's uh, go back to uh, maybe the basics of, of uh, you know, you mentioned Leger having a very large panel. How do you actually get people to participate in the panel, uh, recruit people, and ensure that you're not recruiting the same kind of people? You mentioned how, you know, there might be a little yeah. bit of over-representation of, of people who live uh, by themselves. How do you make sure that you have a sample that and a panel that is representative more than just, uh, you know, the, maybe the, the stranger kind of person that wants to take part in polls? Yeah. Ten years ago, it was fairly simple. We would basically recruit our panel uh, off of our telephone surveys. So at the end of the survey, if the client allowed us, we would ask a question. If you would like to answer other surveys like these over the Internet, leave us your email address. Then we would go through the double opt-in process. Uh, of course, that's mandatory that you basically follow all the, the laws uh, to respect Canadians' privacy. Uh, but that was easy. So 75 to 80% of our panel used to be recruited using telephone surveys. But the fewer telephone surveys we actually do in our call center, we still have a call center, but we're not doing in terms of volume as much as we used to. Uh, we needed to rely on other techniques. Now we use, you know, traditional media in traditional me uh, or advertising in traditional media, sorry, um, to try to recruit. Uh, we use as well digital media uh, campaigns on off of Facebook. Uh, Instagram, now TikTok, we've got campaigns on TikTok where we solicit people to sign up. As soon as they sign up and that we do have permission to send them uh, survey research, then they go through a, a, a couple of initial surveys, which are basically just to classify them um, uh, within the panel. So as soon as they're assessed their individual password, that we verify that they're an actual human being uh, re responding to these surveys, then we go through the full list of who they are from social demographics to um, if they suffer from any uh, uh, chronic diseases, uh, types of beer they drink. And there's about 60 or 70 variables altogether that we measure. And then based on those, we can basically assess to what extent they are like or unlike uh, um, other people. So we, we, we do have quite of an extensive uh, list of, uh, of variables that we, or, or, or stuff that we know of our panel. When we go back to them for a survey, for example, we will ask a few of these questions again to verify that you know, Jim at otmail.ca is actually Jim answering the survey. Uh, plus, we ask you know, questions, uh, what's the color of Napoleon's white horse type to verify that as well that they're paying attention uh, in the survey. But because we know a lot of stuff about them from, from the get-go, uh, we do sort of have confidence that the panel is just average Canadians answering surveys. Uh, where panels tend to overrepresent uh, also has changed. It used to be 10, 15 years ago that it was weighted heavily towards younger uh, Canadians, higher education, higher income, uh, because at that time, 
not everybody had access to the internet. Now that it's become, I think, 93, 94% of Canadians now who have internet access, according to StatScan, uh, we're not finding that bias anymore. And now our panel actually overrepresents the same cohorts that are overrepresented in telephone surveys, which is fit, you know, 45 to 64 year old women. Uh, they're the same people that basically willingly accept to give their opinions. So now we actually struggle to represent 18 to 24 year old men, for example, which would be the same struggle in traditional methodologies like like telephone interviewing. So that, that, that would explain the TikTok campaign. Well, of course, yeah, we're always trying. It, it's, hard, it's hard to recruit them. It's hard to get them to participate uh, as well in research. When you dip into the panel, how does, is it done in a way that it's targeted so that you have like a quota system or that you send invitations out to specific uh, groups within these demographics as you've classified them? Or is it yep. more that you send it out to everybody and then you kind of uh, call it? No, it's, it's very similar to stratified sampling using traditional telephone methodology. Uh, so, so we stratify according to, uh, to region and then within region by, uh, by gender, uh, age and, uh, yeah, uh, I think it's gender, age and income. So when, when, when we push out invitations, the sample is already fairly balanced. Mm. Uh, except for subgroups that we know we need to oversample. So we'll send more invitations to younger uh, age cohorts than we would older age cohorts, which, which tend to have better response rates uh, to web surveys. So the whole thing is stratified before going into field. So uh, if, for example, we send four or 5,000 invitations to uh, where we target a sample of 1,000, uh, we know that once we get it back, the weighting that we actually impose on that sample is actually not or doesn't make that much uh, of a difference because it was sort of stratified going in. Okay. And when you do do the weighting, um, is there, is there, you, you did mention the, uh, whether it was single household, that kind of thing, and, and education. Um, th those are different things than in the past, right? Because it, it Waiting by education, for example, I know is something that in the United States they started to do, uh, particularly after some of the misses with Donald Trump. So th this is these waiting decisions are informed by past experience in terms of how yeah. uh, how accurate the polls have been. Yeah, and and I'd say from a, a to make a long story short, the uh, the uh, the thing we are always concerned about uh, doing uh, interviewing on the web is. Will the will the panel be left leaning, left leaning as in slightly higher income, slightly higher education, slightly more urban than rural, which basically gives you a left leaning panel. Uh, so that's why we introduced the, these new weighting variables, uh, because, of course, if you overrepresent single person dwellings of young people in their early 30s who make a good living because they they all have a master's in something, uh, you'll have a left-leaning panel. Uh, so the concern is, is that how, so the sort of certain miscues about who participates in research uh, translates into political variables uh, is something that is of uh, a concern. And uh, so we, you did see this bias in the United States and you're right, uh, some corrections were made, but even uh, in the last one, in 2020, there was still a bit of a left-leaning bias uh, in a lot of what was uh, uh, a lot of the polling in the United States. So it is improving over time. Um, 
But yeah, so the weighting algorithm, it only gets more complex as we move through time. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to uh, just uh, uh, maybe some broader kind of thoughts about things. You know, uh, so Leger has been working uh, in Quebec in particular with, uh, you know, the Journal de Montréal, TVA. How do you find that relationship has evolved? Not not the specific relationship, but I mean the relationship between a polling firm like yours and the media. Well, of, of course, the uh, the big issue with Canadian media is is their lack of resources. I, I think they're all sort of pinching every penny. Um, I think our capacity to do, to do like we used to maybe 15, 20 years ago to say, if you if you want a Leger poll, you need to you know pay for it in full. Um, a lot of what we do now, because we need those media can, traditional media campaigns to recruit uh, participants, uh, basically we we take care of the poll, you give a space uh, in exchange. So uh, it, it kind of relieves a little bit the burden of media to actually pay in real money for all of these uh, surveys, because I don't, I don't believe they can afford it anymore. Um, or if they can afford it, they're not telling us. Uh, anyway, so, so uh, but we understand money is extremely tight. So that's, I think, the, the business model of doing panel recruiting and the limited resources of media actually sort of balance each other out because uh, some of the commodity they have or the, the real estate that they have, we can actually use uh, as an investment uh, in terms of panel recruiting. So it's working out okay. Um, but in today's world, to get media to, to pay in full for a traditional telephone survey, I don't, I don't know if it is possible uh, anymore in Canada. What do you think is the the role and responsibility of pollsters during a campaign? Because, you know, I hear it. I'm sure you hear it uh, during a campaign. Why do we need these polls? You know, is it is it pushing people's opinions? Is it uh, is it forming opinion rather than measuring opinion? You know, I don't believe that's the case. But what what do you think is the responsibility of a, a pollster when a campaign is yeah. on? And some of the blame that you're talking about, we got it specifically this time around in Quebec because, well, you guys already called it, right? Uh, the, the 25, 28 point lead of the CAQ coming into the campaign. A lot of people were saying, you'll see turnout will be lower because you told people there was no race. In fact, turnout is okay. I mean, it's 66 point some percent compared to 68 in 2018 when the CAQ won their first majority. So not that bad from that perspective. Uh, you cannot deny that polls have an impact uh, on politics in general and political and election campaigns in particular. Uh, I don't know what the size of that impact is. Uh, have we converted some voters to be more strategic about their decision making uh, than they would have otherwise? And if so, is that such a bad thing? I mean, to me, when people look at strategic voting as something that would be bad, I, I don't I don't get that. Um, and uh, the other aspect as well that uh, uh, that pollsters can be blamed for from the broader perspective is how the presence of polling have influenced how media uh, discuss campaigns. Uh, it seems to me that over time, this is more like the political scientist speaking than the than the pollster himself. But uh, it seems when you listen to TV or radio uh, about the campaign is today premier or today party leader X, Y and Z said this or did this because of their or where they're standing in the horse race as if uh, the horse race 
dictated everything that politicians do, which I, I don't believe, I, I still believe they have core values, beliefs uh, that they actually want to put out to Canadians uh, in these elections. But it seems everything is always interpreted in the media as being related to the horse race. Uh, I mean, there's tons of literature on, on that, of course, but I do think that we've contributed to sort of horse race campaign coverage uh, being more prevalent than it might have used to in the in the past. Um, but again, I don't think we have a massive impact on on uh, on the outcome uh, on election night uh, because I, I guess what we measure is how people feel at a, at a point in time. We don't dictate that um, in any way, shape or form. And uh, I was looking at longitudinal research done as well. Um, and, and usually the presence of polls during the campaign has never been seen or there's no clear indication that it could have changed the storyline. Most of the times, the person that's in the lead heading into the campaign wins. So, it, it, so the simple, polls yeah. during the campaign, did they have that much impact? I don't believe so. It does bring up the idea of just if you're observing something, if you're measuring something, then just in that way you're impacting it you know it's more of a scientific kind of, of thing that um but revealing the information uh from that measurement will have an impact but the i don't uh, and i think we probably agree i don't understand the argument against revealing information because it's better for people to be less aware of what's going on in order to make their decision uh, yeah and straws have existed right? yeah straws have existed since the 19th century mostly in the US because fundamentally as human beings we want to know what others are thinking so if it wasn't polling revealing what others are thinking who would we rely on talk radio hosts uh, neighbors yeah uh, or the, the old sort of vox pop they used to do uh, uh, in media is basically asking a few people on a street corner who they'll vote for. I mean, what's the alternative to scientific, rigorous, and and you know members of an auto-regulated industry that try to do their best for the industry to do well collectively? Um, I haven't found a better alternative to, to polling when it comes to revealing how people feel about something. And absolutely, something would replace the vacuum. I, I remember reading a, a newspaper article done uh, for the 1935 election before there was polling. And the entire uh, article was talking to reporters and uh, political people in each part of the country and then trying to forecast what the outcome was going to be. So it, it's not that polling is what <laughs> created this. People always had this fascination of trying yeah, to guess what the outcome true. was going to be. And I can tell you that those forecasts were really not very close in 1935. No. So let's just finish on, on this one last thing. So if you are a telephone pollster, you know, you do have the concern of, of response rates and what's that's going to do in the future as people change their habits. What's the concern about the future for online polling? What is it that you know keeps Leger up at night in terms of what you have to make sure doesn't go badly for your polling? Yeah, what's gotten more expensive, uh, a lot more expensive, is quality control. Uh, also, uh, panel recruitment is becoming more and more expensive, and uh, also uh, ensuring loyalty in the panel. It used to be that that mortality rates. Uh, we're in the sort of low teens. Uh, now we're getting into the 20 odd percent. So you constantly need to be recruiting, replacing uh, panelists. So it, it, 
a few years ago, internet research was the cheap alternative to telephone. Uh, but now, I mean, the, the level of in investment in uh, having a large enough robust panel um, is getting um, extremely expensive. So controlling the, the cost of quality research on the web is becoming a huge issue, not only for us, but the whole industry. Well, um, I really appreciate you coming on uh, to uh, talk with me today and, and congratulations on another good call uh, in the Quebec election and congratulations to your colleagues as well across the industry. So Christian, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, anytime. Thank you. Thanks again to Christian. As I'm sure you've heard by now, the CQ won 90 seats in Monday's election, with the Liberals taking 21 seats, Quebec Solidaire winning 11, and the Parti Québécois taking three seats. The Conservatives were shut out, and Éric Duhem was the only leader of the major five parties to fail to win his seat. Philippe J. Fournier was kind enough to join me throughout the campaign, so I think it is only fair to congratulate him on a very accurate projection. His forecast for the number of seats was right on the money for the Liberals and PQ, and his projection of 92 seats for the CAQ and 9 for QS was only off by two seats per party. Excellent work, Philippe. We tied in our little game of over or under last week. Philippe was correct in taking the under on 16.5% of the vote for Quebec Solidaire, and I was correct in taking the under on 93.5 seats for the CAQ. Beyond that, we both agreed QS would win more than 2.5 seats off the island of Montreal, and that Zrem would be the only leader to be defeated. Most impressively, Philippe guessed the majority would be called by the networks at 8.10pm. It was called at 8.08. Alright, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd like to wish you all a great Thanksgiving long weekend. Till next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.